Hello, and welcome to Think Like a Game Designer. I'm your host, Justin Gary. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with brilliant game designers from across the industry with a goal of finding universal principles that anyone can apply in their creative life. You can find episodes and more at thinklikeagamedesigner.com. I am so excited to introduce today's podcast guest. I got to tell you, there is nobody that I prefer talking to about game design than this man. And frankly, if you're listening to this podcast, the odds that you don't already know the person that I'm about to introduce are incredibly small. But on the off chance you don't, let me tell you about Richard Garfield. Richard created the entire trading card game category with Magic the Gathering and has gone on to design countless incredible trading card games for both physical and digital, including Vampire the Eternal Struggle, the Star Wars trading card game, Spectromancer, Artifact, Keyforge. We worked on a digital card game, Soulforge, together, and he's done tons of other things in addition to that. Lots of great board games, including Robo Rally and Bunny Kingdom, a lot of amazing stuff. He has a career that has not only created tons of incredible invested players and really buoyed the entire tabletop gaming industry, but he's actually created tons of incredible designers. We talk about in this podcast about the radioactive spider bite that gets you to become a game designer. And for him, it was Dungeons and Dragons. And for me, it was Magic the Gathering. If it wasn't for Richard, there's no chance that I would be here talking to you right now. And since we got a chance to work together uh, back on Soul Forge days, I've gotten to really see the insights of how he thinks and the way he processes real rigorous principled ideas around game design. And it's what got me thinking in a much more principled way about design. And so being able to now share his insights with you, I am so excited if you can't already tell. So things we talk about, principles of innovation and how innovation can actually hurt you. We talk about why your game shouldn't be balanced and who you should really be balancing a game for. We talk a lot about Richard's newest category of game with Keyforge, a unique deck building game and the challenges that come from building something that really evolves on the collectible card game category into something that's very different. And we just talk for a ton about all kinds of really fascinating subjects. We were pressed for time, so I had to cut it off earlier than I would have normally wanted to. Um, but this is chock full of goodies. And I know we're going to get another chance to talk again. But in the meantime, I know that you'll enjoy all of the incredible design insights, all of the great conversation that I was able to have with the man, the myth, the legend, Richard Garfield. Richard, it is awesome to get to speak with you again. Hi, Justin. It's good to good to be talking. <laughs> so I uh, I always start uh, the podcast every time I get a new uh, person on here, especially uh, someone who's had as much success and notoriety in the industry as you, to sort of tell their origin story. You know, what's your your hero's journey that got you uh, to designing games and kind of got you to realize that this was a, a career path for you? Uh, well, it, it it took a while for it to become my career path because uh, I looked at what the world of games was and and uh, came away feeling it was pretty pretty much a, 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 an idiot's move to uh, try to make a living off of it. And uh, back in the '80s, when I was probably considering it, it probably was true uh, statistically. And uh, and so I decided to go into uh, uh, even though I loved games, uh, I decided to go into math instead. And uh, um, it was during the course of a of a 
doing my PhD that uh, that I came up with this uh, game concept of that that not all players had to have the same deck, and that really excited me. And uh, 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 soon after that, uh, had a prototype of Magic, which was sort of built on the bones of uh, games that I had been working on for the previous ten years, just as a hobby. Wizards of the Coast was uh, was was uh, looking for a, 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 an interesting game to publish, and so uh, uh, that connection uh, uh, helped it come to life. And how did you get how did you get connected to to Wizards of the Coast and, and Peter Atkinson originally? So, uh, as I said, I was not looking to be a professional game designer, but uh, but I did take game design seriously, both uh, as a uh, academic interest, you know, something I was interested in the history of and uh, uh, the study of, but also in the uh, in sort of a sense of uh, being an artist. I wanted to create things using game design. So so one of the many games I created back uh, in the 80s was was Robo Rally, and uh, that. And my intent at that point was all these creations I made were just for the entertainment of me and my friends. And if uh, they found a publisher, that'd be fine. But I wasn't going to work to find a publisher. But I had a, uh, had a, a, a good friend uh, I met at Bell Labs who uh, fell in love with Roborelli, and uh, and he took it upon himself to uh, to get it published. And uh, he. He, I think he worked through over seven publishers uh, over the course of about seven years before he uh, found uh, this uh, little startup, which was just doing uh, role-playing games, uh, Wizards of the Coast. That's great. Um, I, I would like to uh, circle back to the very start of the origin story because I want to give kudos to uh, uh, Dungeons & Dragons as being uh, really the the uh, radioactive spider bite uh, that turns people into super game designers, at least it did for me. Uh, the uh, Dungeons & Dragons uh, uh, blew me away when I was about 13. I, it, it total, uh, before then, I liked games, but, but Dungeons & Dragons really makes you into a game designer, and it teaches you to be responsible for your own game uh uh, game session, so to speak. Uh, and so it teaches you a lot about all sorts of things about games, and it also presses the boundaries of everything you know about what makes a game. And uh, it, it blew me away. It made me think that uh, that if this crazy uh, 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 thing, which was so far out of my understanding of games, existed, what else is possible in games and what else exists that I don't know? And uh, that's that's really what... what uh, put me into games that's wonderful so i i actually so there's there's pretty common stories here i want to i want to underscore one point from earlier uh and then and i'll come back to dungeons and dragons um you know that the fact that you started on this path with no expectation or certainly no reasonable expectation at the time of it being a career or trying to get published but that you had this sort of love of the creation and that success was defined really as having something that's fun for you and your friends to play and that by working on the craft and creating things that were so much fun, you almost got pulled into being published uh, by other people is a pretty, you know, fascinating aspect of it. And I actually find is, is often very true. And a lot of the people that are end up being successful are not starting out as I'm going to make a career. It's I love doing this. And then, oh, well, okay, wait, I can actually make a living doing this. That's awesome. Uh, so I think there's, that's an, a, an important sort of lesson to be drawn from that. And then with Dungeons and Dragons, there's, you know, I've talked to a lot of different designers and 
there are generally two, as you called it, radioactive spider bites uh, that almost every single one fall into. And the first is Dungeons and Dragons, and the second one is Magic the Gathering. And I, I certainly fall into the latter category. There's no way I exist as a game designer without Magic's influence, and that both addicting me and turning me into a pro player traveling around the world, and then you, as an inspiration and jumping off point. Uh, I, I assume at this point you've got to realize how much of an impact that you've had, but it's a pretty, pretty enormous. Like, what does it feel like? Or when did you first start to, to realize like how much your design was now creating the entire next generation of, of game designers? Uh, well, it was, uh, it, it was sobering for a long time and, and, and sort of scary to look at, uh, how popular and influential magic was becoming throughout the nineties. And uh, uh, it and 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 certainly gratifying, uh, but uh, but not and, and, but not really expected. I, I knew that I had a really uh, good game with some really uh, 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 amazing hooks that people hadn't seen before, but uh, but I had also seen so many games through the uh, through the eighties and and late seventies as I explored games that were excellent, but uh, and really interested me, but had no feet. You know, they were small games, uh, or or my parents hadn't heard of them, even though they were reasonably reasonably popular. Uh, um, And and so and so I knew going into this that uh, that uh, there was there was a, a very good chance that my game would end up in the same category that it would find you know some small audience but uh but not not blow up like it did so it's uh been an unexpected and exciting journey it's uh and it's uh, uh been really nice to to uh contribute to uh the world of games uh, uh i often liken my attitude about games to my attitude about math uh and uh sort of building uh, any any sort of cultural uh creation i don't think it's uh um, a one-person thing. I don't. Uh, I, I think of it as something where we're, we're all sort of working together to create uh, something incredible, and sort of to be able to. So to be able to lay some important stones in that edifice of uh, games is uh, is is wonderful. Yeah, that's that's very well said. I think that's kind of all of us as designers. We're all sort of like taking the building blocks that were handed to us before, and then. Oh, hey! If you put these two blocks together, it creates this new thing, and then somebody else can take that and then build the next thing, and then there's this just amazing tower that's that's been constructed, and and really, I mean, just so much so over the last even fifty years that it's blown up and changed. Obviously, gaming's been around for forever, but so it feels like it the the rate of evolution has increased dramatically in our lifetimes and uh it's it's been a really exciting time to be in the craft and and let alone the the idea of game design as a craft didn't even really exist back then that where now it's sort of taught in schools and we've written books about it and you can like really try to create a language that we can have this conversation about different styles of play and what you know what why we play and how we design and what you know the purpose of that is uh, I think it's a really fascinating time that that's something else that you've been really involved in is is teaching and um, and writing about design. How do you find that craft of sort of the the educational process of of, of training new designers and, and talking about design has evolved? Oh, it's it's uh, 
been amazing to watch uh, watch it uh, grow up. Uh, back in the 70s, uh, we were looking in, in sort of despair at uh, what there was written on game design uh, or, you know, games in general. Uh, you could find, you know, books on histories, history of games and so forth. But even those were... Uh, um, few and uh and and often so drenched in uh um uh, they 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 didn't they were inaccurate uh i, I want to say there, there wasn't much to go on uh so so people don't leave a lot of records of games even though they've been historic there's evidence that they're uh sort of part part of hu humanity's uh existence for a long time an important part but People don't write about them, and uh, and uh, and and so so there's not that much. Uh, you you rather than finding a set of rules and and a set of all the games people played, uh, you'll find uh, you know some some pieces and sort of have to put things together. Maybe it'll be mentioned in a poem. Anyway, uh, that's getting off off track. But uh, but yeah, the uh, 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 seeing games grow up to this level where uh, back in the 70s and 80s, uh, you began to see uh, you saw schools. Uh, dedicated to this relatively new art form uh, um, film and uh, and and the serious study of that and uh, and to see that sort of extend to games has been terrific yeah I think that that in addition sort of like now having this this craft and tons of you know like shoulders of giants that we can stand on and now like read about and learn about and there's YouTube channels on game design there's all these things that exist there's certain kinds of traits that I find really help for somebody that's gonna you know, become a game designer and really try to make an impact. And and we've kind of touched on some of these things, you know, appreciating sort of mechanical structures. And as you sort of talked about this, you know, similar into mathematics and having the ability to sort of see systems and build things. And there's also some other things that I've noticed in your personality and, and a lot of the designers I talk to, there's this sort of go against the grain kind of nature to it, right? When you play games, I've noticed that you will you know, pick the strategies that are the least uh, least uh, common and find ways to exploit them and, 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 and really upend what people are expecting. And if they aren't working, then change the game to make it so that they do work. <laughs> right, right. And so that is that you think that that kind of contrariness or that that pushing to the edge is is a key part of, of being a designer or maybe just a key part of your style? Or do you think there's something universal there? Um, uh, I've never heard it. Uh characterized as something that might be universal i can't so i can't think of any counterexamples to it but i don't i, I haven't asked that question much uh, um I, I certainly wouldn't be surprised if there were a, a lot of designers who did not have that bent uh, um, uh, for me uh i i'm a very i'm very interested in the uh system of a game and so part part of uh, learning about a system is sort of learning uh, the the really the extreme points and playing around with those and uh, and uh, and and I love playing with the framework and and uh, and seeing how that changes the way the game is played and uh, the sort of spaces it defines. But uh, but uh, I, I don't think I, I don't think that will be universal. I think there are some uh, there are other designers who are driven by by very different things and uh, are more interested in uh, putting together a very 
tight engine that uh, that they understand and that that carries whatever sort of simulative properties they're interested in, and uh, and it's, so it's less for them about looking at the crazy points uh, that it that, that come about than maybe shaping those, uh, or or the only reason they look at them is not not because. Uh, they're fascinated by them, but because they want to sort of shave them down so that the game is is more of a, a, a beautiful gem than uh, sort of a, a, a crazy gem mine. <laughs> right, I like it. The sort of that elegance as a as a primary driver, or being able to build that that concrete thing. Um, okay, well, this I think sounds like a great way to transition into uh, pushing at some of these crazy edges of games. Um, so one of the things that I really wanted to talk about was was kind of the interaction between business models and game design. Um, obviously, Magic was a you know sort of innovated this entire idea of the collectible card game and created a whole world where now the design obviously has to be very influenced by that business model. And since then, the world you know both exploded with those and then has evolved into a ton of different kinds from you know freemium games online to you know things like keyforge which we can get into to different expandable game models to subscription models all different all the whole world of of business and design and how do you uh, you know obviously the, the things really interact with each other but i guess i'd like to just sort of expand a little bit on how you're thinking about that today and where you see the the industry moving as far as that connection Looking at the connection between your revenue model and the game is is certainly key, uh, especially these days where there's so many different crazy examples and crazy possibilities with uh, with digital play. It's it's really interesting to uh, to to look at uh, what people are investing in and 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 what they get out of the, how that helps their or hinders their game play experience. Uh, so so. Uh, one of the earliest examples of my thinking about that would have been with Magic, uh, where, where, or, or even before Magic, where I was sort of conceiving of this uh, concept of trading card game, um, where I was uh, really worried about uh, the person who buy who bought the most cards always winning. Um, now, while I was worried about that, the way I viewed games at the time was that uh, you that uh, you have to take some control over your gameplay experience and and so I, I figured that if there were if there were broken combinations that that uh, when people discovered them they'd play with them but then they'd discard them and do something else after all that's what I did with uh, another very influential game uh, for me which is a uh, cosmic encounter um, uh, there were lots of uh, uh, busted powers there and busted combinations, and and uh, and we sort of rolled with it. Uh, uh, that that never caused us any problem. But my my uh, uh, very early on, I, I came up with this uh, this idea that uh, you wanted to make the common cards the most powerful cards, uh, or at least the broadest cards uh, in general, uh, and then the uh, the rare cards being. Um, uh, uh, narrower and uh, more flavor driving, and uh, uh, and and so the idea about that was that if you invested uh, some modest amount into a game system, uh, I mean, if you buy if you get more cards, you're always going to have uh, a better chance uh, because you have more 
decks to choose from, but you can make it so that the decks you're choosing from, uh, the, the advantage you get diminishes over uh, very quickly. So you get sort of a logarithmic car, uh, uh, curve of your aggregate power increase rather than an exponential curve or a, even a linear curve. Um, so, so if you buy 10 booster packs, uh, you've, you, you know, you've got whatever. Yeah, yeah. I, I aimed for having 75% of the power you could get, right? Something like that, uh, as opposed to uh, 10% of the power you could get. And uh, and so uh, uh, that was an example of looking at the game, the revenue model, which was very new at the time, uh, and trying to figure out how, uh, how that should impact the design relative to the player. Uh, and it's still something... That, that drives me today with Keyforge. Uh, uh, you look at the common cards in Keyforge, and they're very powerful. People's first uh, impulse in looking at uh, the, the, the decks in Keyforge was to sort of count up how many rare cards they were, and that's how good the deck is. But that that is not at all true. It might be sort of make it very interesting and have this really uh, weird play style or something like that but uh but it, it's no you know accident that uh, the common cards are things like complete board wipes and you know immense creatures with crazy abilities yeah so let's dig into let's dig into to keyforge a little bit so um just in case there's some people listening that ha- aren't familiar with the concept of keyforge you want to give a quick kind of top line what what keyforge is and how it works what differentiates it from other games out there Sure. Uh, Keyforge uh, was inspired by very early play of Magic, uh, where we would uh, get um, we would run leagues where you would get uh, a deck and maybe a couple boosters and stamp them, and they could only be played in a group. Um, and uh, I found this really interesting because you uh, uh, learn everybody has their own strengths and weaknesses and you learn them over, over a long period of time, uh, how best to play against each other and how to play best to use the strengths and weaknesses you have. Um, and so uh, a long time ago, I began thinking, what if you could print these uh, decks uh, in such a way that uh, the card backs were different so that you kept a deck together? Because one of the problems with playing with it this way with Magic is that, uh, or any trading card game, is that uh, uh, after the evening's done, your your cards sort of disappear into your mass of cards and, and you can't revisit them. So uh, relatively recently, Printing technology is caught up to this idea, and uh, I was able to make a game where uh, every deck that was printed was unique um, and, uh, in fact, had a unique name, and that name appeared on the back of every card. And so and so, when you uh, started playing that deck, uh, you, uh, you would learn what its strengths and weaknesses are, and there's no real chance that it would get lost among your other cards because it's a, a, a single unit uh and uh and that's what keyforge is so when you're uh and i mean the instant i saw this game i i think i messaged you right away it was just like this is this is awesome this is something that we've kind of like the culmination of stuff that like a lot of us have been thinking about for a really long time and it's really cool to see it see it implemented when uh when you were building this game one of the things that i thought was going to be happening when i first saw it was that actually each card would be unique or within that the cards themselves would change and and in reality for this game the the cards they're sort of a fixed set of cards but they can come in in totally unique combinations um as you were building this did you ever consider 
the cars themselves modifying? Um, was there a was that just not possible from where the printing was at? Like what where did the you decide on sort of the way that this unique combination was going to come together and how many different versions of it there were going to be? Uh, I, I think I think that's a really uh, natural uh, expectation from this game form, and I, I, I'm hopeful that we'll see something like that in the future. There's a couple reasons I went with uh, this uh, this format. Um, one of them was technical, although that wasn't the main thing. I think if I pushed at it, we could have changed that. It's been really hard to make procedural cards, uh, uh, but it's becoming easier. Uh, we can talk a little bit about that later, uh, but that's uh, clearly a short short-term problem, not a long-term problem. Um, uh, very early on, though, I, I wanted, uh, I set this framework where uh, every deck was unique, but it was mostly uh, unique as a collection of uh, disjoint things that you understood. Um, and uh, uh, I did that in part because, uh, because that way, uh, players who played the game a bunch would be able to sit down and uh, understand all of a deck or 75% of a deck that they're up against quickly uh, rather than have to learn uh, about every card individually along the way, which I, I thought might slow things down. Um, now, I think there's probably some clever ways you could do it where, where uh, learning your opponent's deck every time wouldn't be at, you, know, you you have to do something smart in order to uh, to make that experience fun and quick. But I think there are smart things you can do. Um, but uh, but for my first foray into unique deck games, I thought the that it would be uh, uh, safest and best for the players if uh, a fireball was the same in every deck, and that uh, and that if there were procedural cards, uh, that they would be pretty rare uh and uh, that 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 uh, that that would help people get into the strategy of the game and understanding the world a lot faster so it's interesting because i feel like there's two forces at play here right the one that you just described where it's like all right if i'm going to play against someone and there's sort of the competitive or the you know i'm going to sit down and you actually keyforge you actually have a, a a sort of deck card that gives you the contents of each deck that's like starts out in play so you can actually look at your opponent's deck list and know what's in it before you even start playing so there's this um you know i can more quickly grok what's happening and play a, a strategic game but on the flip side you know there's something that i experienced when i first started playing magic which is has in many ways for me at least personally since disappeared where I would play against someone and I would have no idea when they would play a card, what that card even existed. Uh, you know, now, of course, with the Internet and previews and everything, I, I know all the cards before I start playing. But one of the things I thought was put a cool potential that could come in in something that was truly a unique unique deck game with unique cards is that like that experience of discovery could happen all the time because all the cards you never know what you're going to see um was that just it, the the craziness behind that too much to sort of you, you ended up opting for this idea of like more grokkable more strategic but easier to wrap your head around uh and uh, i'm curious how much that that trade-off uh you feel like is that just a because this is the first one you wanted to start kind of safe or safer at least and then and then move on or do you think that the being too crazy is just going to be too much of a price to pay uh, in a game like this yeah in the long run i don't think it's uh too crazy uh um i i uh, w one of the uh things I, I i like to think about is how much complexity in design is how much uh 
how much you want to innovate. Uh, innovation is a good thing. It gives us new games. Uh, and uh, But, uh, um, but uh, every time you innovate something, you cost your players uh, because they have to unlearn something or relearn it. And so, and so I tend to like to think uh, about uh, this complexity, uh, uh, the cost of, uh, you, you have a budget for complexity and how much you want to spend. And, and, uh, and I, think, I think this idea of, uh, of, of, of trying as hard as you can to get back to this world where everything you flip up is new and exciting and you don't know what's out there, I think that's a possibility. But uh, but I think that was going beyond my uh, the complexity budget I set for myself. Sure. Um, and and once once this uh, this format is exp- you know, understood and and you have people who understand what's going on, I think that's that's a sort of uh, one of the great ways to uh, sort of make uh, make a new design is to say, okay, well that's what you know this this new twist is what we're going to add to that. Now we've got all this. Uh, the, these these uh, these concepts which uh, are understood, and then it's less of a you know l- less of a reach. Although I will say that for uh, KeyForge, my uh, intent was that you do get some of that magic over time, uh, because uh, uh, um, just as in the in the first set. Uh, there's this uh, sort of exciting notion of uh, mavericks. So uh, there's seven suits or houses in the uh, in, in in the game, and uh, sort of they're at, roughly like uh, colors in magic. And uh, and one of the things you can do in a game like this is make it so that cards go into uh, a house they don't belong into, belong in, and that sort of breaks your expectation. And you uh, you sort of might know that intellectually that's possible, but uh, but but it's super super rare. So 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 you do get uh, hints of that sort of magic of discovery, and then over time you get even more because we have uh, with the second set we've got uh, legacy cards, and legacy cards are cards which uh, are uh, cards which no longer are being printed, but they exist in this one deck, and uh, and so over time, you know, after ten years, uh, you're going to have uh, uh, something where you understand uh, most of the current environment, but there's going to be these cards that haven't been around for ten years uh, showing up in your deck, and and that should get some of the. Uh, and 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 you know uh, the the rarity with which they will happen will be such that uh, I, I'm hoping that that uh, there'll be a, a little bit of that fairy dust in there. That's wonderful. I think I I also I just want to to, to pause and underscore because I think there was you, you you said not only a really important principle but one that I think divides into two, which is the there's the idea of complexity points, uh, which I think is important for any designer. And actually, one of the most common mistakes I see in new game designers is they just try to throw way too much at the project and it becomes too hard to, to grok everything that's happening and understand what's happening. Uh, and that's true regardless of even if you're innovating greatly or just have a lot happening within a game. And then there's the idea that innovation is great, but too much innovation is bad. That if you innovate too much, people can't relate to things that they know. They can't be able to get what's going on and you can actually be too far ahead of the curve. Um, when you're designing and so that you actually want to really focus on a, a core innovation or, or a limited subset that are related uh, in a new project that will bring people along with you and then provide the foundation like the building blocks we talked about earlier to then build new things on top of that. No, that's uh, that's super important. And, and it's something which is uh, one of the things we are 
in danger of these days is uh, is is uh, losing one of the most uh, exciting things about games, which is that they a good game becomes better and better the more you play it, not more used up. So uh, games. Uh, I like to think about games as books and movies and so forth, but they're very, very different. Games is, games are more like music because uh, oftentimes w- when you hear a piece of music the first time, it doesn't mean much, but then the more you hear it, the better it gets. And so uh, so when you have a culture of game, game players where they play a game once and then they say, oh, this isn't so good or, uh, oh, this is okay, but I want to go over to this next game, then then you've got a culture of game players who are not getting what is absolutely the most exciting part of games to me, which is that uh, that uh, the better you know it, the better it gets. And so, as a game designer, when you over innovate, what you're doing is you're putting play, you're, you're you're making it so players can't bring as much expertise into the game, so they get into that uh, exciting part where they really know the game all that much slower, and uh, and and so that really costs you. Yeah, that's that's a really fascinating point, and it and it, it dovetails into another challenge which I hear a lot, both from a, a player perspective and a designer perspective these days, is that there's so many games coming out so often, right? On the sort of flip side, the dark side, if you will, of the the fact that we're in such a, a, a renaissance of games, there's so much you know innovation and so much to build on, and so much knowledge out there, and it's so much easier to make games than it's ever been before. That there's you know hundreds of games coming out every month, and so there's this tendency to sort of focus on what's new and just play the latest thing and and that a lot of great games can kind of get lost in the shuffle um because there's just you know the shiny new object that people are chasing after um is there you know do do you put much thought into that especially when there's new i really want to sort of tailor it to like a new designer right you you put out a new game everybody's going to pay attention but for a designer that doesn't have the same notoriety do you think of ways that they can kind of break through that noise or build something that's going to last longer than just whatever the most recent wave or trend is? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. I do think about that a lot. And uh, um, uh, because because of my game consumption, I, I, I really like to find, uh, to, to, to know as much about what's being done as I can, because uh, it's, Part of my uh, my love of games is is sort of I want to see all the all all the games that are being made, but but uh, yeah I've I've I really have to uh, uh, teach myself to discipline myself to go back and play my favorite games again and again and give uh, new games that come along that really shine a chance to get to that level as well where I, I play them more than, more than once for a new designer uh, yeah it's it's. It's. I mean, it's hard for me as a uh, established designer uh, often uh, to to get attention. I did this uh, this game uh, Spy Spynet, uh, which is a uh, it was done through Z-Man a couple years ago. Uh, it was a, a, a small uh, two person or two team game, which uh, uh, where you do a, a Winston draft, uh, which is a specific type of draft that I, I created for Magic originally. And I, I thought the game was outstanding. I thought it could could be played with uh, the same uh, depth that Tiju 
is played, where where uh, sort of uh, be appealing to the same group of people who like to play uh, play a, a card game uh, and and get into the nuances of the strategy over a long period of time. But you know, it hardly made a blip, and I, it's just like uh, no matter who I talk to to sort of get the word out or something like that I, I couldn't I couldn't get attention for it. So there is the possibility, of course, that I, I overestimate how. Uh, how, how good a game it is, uh, but uh, but I really think uh, it's because uh, but but a part of me thinks, and I think I think uh, at least part of that is because uh, the people who did try it tried it and were like, eh, and they move and they moved on rather than sort of go to this next stage of uh, of of of, of, of uh, you know playing it a bunch of times and and, and learning the subtleties. Um, so if I have difficulty with that. Uh, you can imagine that uh, that uh, that the, you know, somebody with less uh, less of a of a name recognition is going to have that much more. Uh, on the other hand, I'm I'm kind of uh, I'm not as plugged into ways to use uh, social media uh, to uh, drive the game, both in terms of excitement on Kickstarter and uh, and and just getting the word around with Facebook. So so yeah, and uh, uh, we recently did a. Uh, a trivia game, uh, Half Truth, uh, in our campaign, uh, we we employed a uh, a company that, that specializes in uh, in in doing uh, Kickstarter programs, uh, Studio Seventy One for that, and uh, they they seemed uh, really good at uh, at uh, you know kicking that up a notch. So uh, uh, I think somebody who's more uh, uh, savvy on the uh, on on the uh, uh, networking these days could probably do a lot more than uh, than than I can do, uh, and uh, and 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 so and so yeah. Yeah, that's funny. I did actually worked on a project with Studio Seventy One uh, in the past also. Uh, that uh, they definitely know that marketing side quite well. Um, so how did how did that go? Uh, it went well. It was I was you know less. I was more in the background on that project. Uh, so it was a it was an influencer that was kind of their game, and I was you know, in the background, making sure there was a real game there. Um, and I see, I see, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it went, it went, it went well. It was a good uh, project, although it was an interesting process because that was a while ago. And they, I was working with a lot of people that just didn't understand the games and the game audience. And so it took a lot of like heavy lifting to get to the point where we could make the thing uh, and make it, make sure that it was going to be good, but it was a, the, you know, the project did well and funded and um, it was a really fun it was a fun project because it was like a kind of kinetic block destroying kind of game with like cannons and you actually, you know, throwing things around. And so it was a really fun, it was a fun project for me to work on. And I learned a lot. Yeah. About how they, that, you know, functionally you need to be thinking about Kickstarters and marketing as its own game um, that those things have, you know, you want to create different incentives for people to share and more exciting moments for them to unlock and reveal things and having different tiers where people can like, you know, earn status and show off where they are in the program and, and create a connection and sense of ownership with what's going on. So in my experience doing Kickstarters and working with other teams that have been very successful with it, um, that is just an entire game design project in and of itself. Uh, in addition to, of course, understanding the basics of, you know, social media and, and marketing and how to kind of get the word out on its own, I think there's a there's a real space for us as designers to be thinking about, okay, how do you make this fun and viral and something people want to share. Um, so I, when, the more I think about it like that, the more 
I kind of can wrap my head around it. And, you know, we have some a, a, a big Kickstarter we're planning for the not too distant future, which I can't really talk about right now. But uh, that uh, is a is a is a part of it uh, that I think designers can really play with and, and have more fun with. And the you know, there's this tendency to think of like, oh, sales and marketing, like I'm not really into that. That's not what I'm here for. Um, but I think just like when we we're talking about business models, interactions with game design, I think marketing models, interactions with game design and how you want to um, build something uh, is really important. Like uh, it's, it's crucial. It's, it's so important. Uh, I think about it so much uh, uh, trying to get a game to get the attention it deserves uh, or that I think it deserves. And for a new designer, I guess uh, I would advise a new designer uh, in, in two ways with the, with the Kickstarter stuff and getting that media together is like i'm no expert at that i just know that uh know that there's a lot going on and there's a lot of different uh, threads to pull and that studio 71s if they're working for you that's great if they're not they're part of the problem because they're creating all this noise around other things which is distracting from you um, so so the flip side of that is is i would encourage new designers to as much as they can and as hard as as it is go to publishers uh and try to use them because they are experts at uh at at getting the word out now this game that i was uh complaining about uh, uh spynet that was done through a publisher so they they can't uh they it doesn't always work but uh, working with them in general, uh, they will have more resources and more experiences than a new designer. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, um, and uh, uh, I think a lot of people give up on the traditional publisher too fast. Uh, um, in that uh, they'll give them a design and it won't pass muster for the designer, and then they might do that a couple times, and then they say, "Oh, well, let's let's go to Kickstarter." Um, I would. I get my my designs are ter- given back to me from the publisher for many many reasons very frequently, uh, um, and and sometimes it's just not what they're looking for. Uh, uh, sometimes they misunderstand the uh, inherent brilliance in my design. <laughs> of course, uh, but sometimes there are legitimate problems which uh, need to be addressed, and so every time I get the game back. I look at what they've said because usually they're they're very uh, thoughtful about uh, you know saying why why it didn't work for them, and uh, I, I I ask myself whether there's uh, uh, some improvement I can make based on that, and sometimes uh, I, I I think that that it ends up with like just making it a better game. Other times, uh, it makes it a better game in a strange way where I don't think it was a problem to begin with, but the fact that they saw a problem uh, um, means in some sense there is a problem, right? Like if they say the person who goes first always wins, even if the person who first has a a less than average chance of winning, uh, there's sort of uh, not a problem because what they're saying is, false but there is a problem because lots of people are going to say that if they say that uh and so is reality in many ways and so and so uh all you know whether or not what they're saying is accurate about your game they are giving you a uh perception which is a reality and uh and so a chance to address that either in just changing the presentation or changing the mechanics so it looks like it's a little different but uh but you know it, it 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 however you deal with that uh uh that's a real problem. But if you take that feedback and you say, oh, I'm just going to go to Kickstarter, well, uh, 
um, you are sort of turning away from some really valuable neutral critique that you won't get from uh, your friends and family and uh, and a Kickstarter crowd that's just you know, really uh, excited about the, uh, the, the, the whatever they picture the game you're going to present is going to be rather than what it is. Yeah, and that, it's funny because I, I was going to, you know, it was one point I was going to ask about, about failures and setbacks and how you deal with them. And I think this is, this is one of the key components, right? Like even an experienced designer who has been doing this for, you know, 30 years is you're going to have designs that don't work. You're going to get rejections from publishers. You're going to have feedback that you don't necessarily want to hear. And the ability to take that in, listen to that feedback, decide if there's something that needs to be done. And if so, is it, you know, a fundamental thing or a presentation thing or whatever? And being able to learn from that is just so critical to being able to evolve. And so as a new designer, I always advise people, like, you know, nobody, no design is perfect. <laughs> Assume that there are flaws there. And if somebody can help you find them, then that's a gift that they've given you. Uh, whether it's a flaw of perception or a flaw of deep mechanics or whatever, that you have that opportunity and being able to approach it from that perspective is a game changer as opposed to this, like, oh, my ego is now on the line and I've been attacked and, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. Sometimes they don't know what they're talking about, but but starting from the perspective that every piece of feedback is valuable and that you, you know, can control how you take that in and how you can update your your process, your design, your learnings is, is just such a critical paradigm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, you're always going to get this feedback. Uh, yeah, uh, take, you can get value from the feedback and uh, and so use that value. And, and and there was another thing earlier. There was so much great stuff in that last last segment. I, another thing I wanted to underscore uh, when you were talking about Spynet, that there's uh, you know there you made this sort of comment that like the depth of play is incredible. And once you start getting into it, there's so much that you can learn and explore and go you know find all these layers of what's happening. But possibly with that game, but I'm sort of making the principle more in general. If the surface level isn't appealing, nobody gets to the depth right and that and that one of the things when it comes to trying to make noise or be able to kind of be seen is you've got to have that surface level be shiny you've got to have something that's going to draw people in right like keyforge is a great example right when you first hear the idea of keyforge every deck is unique what i just buy one and i can just play it and that's what ha like you now have somebody's attention you know and so the fact that there's also a good game behind it and depth to explore fantastic that's what keeps people but without that initial like you describe it to me, I know what's going on, or I see something on the table at a convention or a, you know, whatever, something that draws you in, uh, you're never going to get, no matter how deep and awesome your experience is, nobody's ever going to experience it. So designing to the surface is, you know, in many ways, at least as important as designing for depth. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't want to hear that, but it, it, it's a pretty critical part of like making sure that your game is going to be viral and people are going to want to pay attention. Yeah, uh, that is, that is absolutely true. So um, I'd like to uh, pivot a little bit uh, into a topic I know we're both uh, pretty uh, fired up about, uh, which is the you know concept of how to develop games, about balance, about being able to find ways to make a game the right level of strategic depth versus perceived balance versus all of these things. This is one of the most 
there's so many layers, ways we can kind of dive into this. Um, you know, and I got a, I asked for um, on on social media for some fan questions and people, and without fail, a lot of these questions revolved around balance. What do you do about power creep, and how do you feel about the broken cards, and and it's it's this fired up thing, which I, I, uh, I I'm sure we could talk about for hours, but uh, but let's just kick it off with this idea of of today when you think about what does it mean for a game to be balanced and 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 what what are you what do you strive for uh in your designs now uh i, I yeah i think uh certainly a lot about uh game balance so what what people mean by game balance often uh is uh, uh changes also people aren't consistent with uh what they're referring to when they talk about game balance um uh and and uh but uh uh, so, so there's like the balance of. Uh, uh, oftentimes, people will play a particular game and they'll say, "Oh, this game wasn't balanced." And what they are saying, when you dig a little deeper, is that they wanted to do a trading st strategy, and the trading strategy wasn't as powerful as they thought it should be. So, therefore, it wasn't balanced. Now, it could be that the that that, that the designer did not intend the trading strategy to be look a strategy unto itself uh but but something which uh is just augmenting other stuff because you can't actually have it so every single strategy is successful because then it doesn't matter what you do right there has to be some some strategies that work better than others uh so when when you've got this uh a, a person uh who criticizes based on the fact that uh that uh, that what they tried to do didn't work. I mean, obviously that can also work because it's the first time they played. Uh, it's crazy how oftentimes people will, how often people will say a game is unbalanced because in their first playthrough something happened they didn't expect it and they lost the game. Uh, and and uh, and rather than uh, rolling with it during the game or learning from it after the game, the game is unbalanced and then they cross it off. Uh, and. Uh, it's it's it, it it kills me that uh, that how often that is uh, the reaction because because one of the I mean the thing which makes games wonderful to me is that they are so hard to predict and to understand and and that even no matter how good you are uh, you cannot get uh, the nth degree in, into a, uh, a, a a reasonably deep game the first time you play it. I don't even try in my designs to do that I, I because uh, I make the prototype and play it. I do not try to think about it the first time because it's just 10, 10 hours of thinking uh, about something is 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 worth five minutes of play yeah right i, I sit down and, uh, and and play for five minutes and i understand it a hell of a lot better and then uh and then can sort of iterate from there but uh, uh, uh something happened to me recently which uh which uh got me uh rethinking some of my thoughts on balance which uh was that i was watching a uh a dice tower review of uh the game uh tapestry and and Tom Vassell uh, liked liked the game and uh, and talked about all the exciting things in it. Uh, one of the things that he was still on the fence about was was balance, and uh, um, some of the aspects of balance he said weren't balanced, but you had some ways to address them in the game, and uh, other aspects he couldn't tell because he hadn't played it long enough, which are both uh, reasonable things, um, but. Uh, 
uh, I found myself listening to that and getting excited by the fact that it might not be balanced uh, or or as balanced as is is expected these days. And I think these days uh, a lot of designers overbalance their games. They uh, they really uh, try to try to they they try to take such strong control over the player experience that they remove a lot of these things which I like to explore in games. Uh, and and so hearing that about it made me think, oh, I really want to play Tapestry because I want to see you know it's like play through some of these sort of potentially broken uh, 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 broken characters and see if I can't make uh, the ones that uh, uh, are underpowered uh, make them work or, or you know, kick some ass with the ones that are broken or whatever. Yeah, I uh, I think I think that there's this uh, I know <laughs> I know because I went through this exact process as a designer. You know, I came at it from I started as the as as a Magic Pro player, and then I started working on designing uh, for the Versus System trading card game. And I came at it as a pro player. Your job is to break the game, right? Your job is to figure out where the thing is degenerate and then find a way to exploit that strategy as much as possible. And I took my job as a designer when I first started designing as making my game unexploitable, right? That I was going to make sure that there was nothing degenerate ever and then ended up paying exactly the price you're talking about, which is that there was a lot less fun. There was a lot less things you could do. There was a lot less discovery of the many possibilities that are out there. And, uh, and I learned that I needed to be afraid of my designs to make them fun. I needed, you know, uh, that's, yeah. it was an important, important lesson that a lot of people do not know when they come at it as a player first and not as a designer first. That's a really good way to put it. You need to be afraid of your designs. That's, uh, that's perfect. Uh, a, a, a good illustration of that was back in the day in magic. Uh, um, uh, I moved out of magic design, uh, fairly early and, uh, but I was, uh, in sort of general magic steering for, you know, 10 years or whatever it was. Um, and uh, one of the things we were talking about is how to measure the performance of the developers. Uh, now, the developers are similar to the pro players. Their job is to, is to break the designs and then, and then, and then the designers, uh, working with the designers, they fix those uh, so that the overall product be is more balanced. I like to think of the developers as being like the engineers and the uh, designers as being like the architects. And, uh, um, and uh, there was this notion put forward that, that every banned or eroded card should, uh, should be a ding for the performance of the developers. And I, I uh, put forth and strongly believe that that's, you know, that's the wrong way to measure performance for your developers, because if you do that, then, then they won't be taking any chances and the game will be less fun. So I, I, I said, obviously can't be too many, but I, I, I went so far as to saying is like, you should, should, you should aim for one banned card a year, right? Like, uh, like then, you know, they're taking chances. Uh, um, and, uh, uh, I mean, they, they didn't do that, but, uh, but the spirit of what I was saying, which was that, uh, was that you need to take some chances here and nobody is smart enough not to make mistakes when they take those chances uh, from time to time. Right. You always you have to ride that edge uh, to make the best possible game, and of course you hope to stay on the right side of it. And uh, but if you're yeah, if you're never failing, you're not trying hard enough. Um, is is a kind of good rule of thumb that I use. But I think we can maybe dig a little deeper here because I think in my experience there are 
you know, there are good bets and bad bets when it comes to kind of pushing, uh, quote unquote, unbalanced or, you know, designs or pushing the envelope as far as what's possible. Um, and I'm curious, you know, so like, for example, um, one thing I always try on is like, you know, there are certain types of strategies that you tend to know provoke unfun play patterns, right? Resource denial strategies, things that prevent people from being able to play, um, take, you know, skipping turns or destroying lands or whatever that. And so with those types of getting curse cards. Yeah, curse cards. Exactly. Yes, that's a great example, right? Yeah, when I built Ascension, it was one of the things I hated in Dominion was that like you got curse cards and your deck just got worse. Like the whole fun of a deck building game is that feeling of like exponential progress as you're getting better and better and doing your thing, right? I don't want to be interfered with like that. It's not fun. Um, and so those types of strategies are ones where I won't push the envelope. You know, I will always be conservative. Uh, whereas other strategies that maybe are sort of late game, super dominant dragons or crazy, you know, high cost cars that you can acquire that go up like those, I'm willing to push a little bit further. Um, so that's one kind of example of like a rule of thumb. Do you have any, any things along those lines that you think about as far as like where the safer places to push are or how you should think about creating that play space? No, I, I, well, I'd never thought about it in that way, but I think that's a good a good way to think about it. But uh, but certainly with magic, for example, I uh, um, made it so that a lot of those unfun strategies I tried to aim to make them viable, and uh, the next generation of developers and designers uh, uh, really uh, pushed back on that. Uh, I, for the reasons which you cite, and I think correctly, uh, to make it so that while like uh, uh, resource denial was in the game, it wasn't. Uh, it was it was uh, conservatively enough um, presented that uh, that uh, it was really unlikely that it was going to make a strategy unto itself. But uh, I, I wanted to. Uh, mention one other thing. I've got this wonderful story of uh, game balance, uh, which uh, I'd like to share with you. Great, and, and your listening audience. <laughs> um, so, so there's this question as to who you balance for, because one one of the things I go into, I've got such respect for games uh, that, that I often think that it's hubris to to do what I think is what people try to do, which is uh, uh, design for the best player possible, because we don't know who the best player possible is. So I think there's two mistakes for that presented there. One is we don't know what, you know, how God would play the game. Uh, and two, uh, that ignores a lot of your audience. A lot of people aren't your best player. Is there such a thing as balance for them? And uh, um, I've talked to designers who feel very strongly that the, you know, just the top level, that's who you design for. Everybody else needs to get to, you know, get to that level to, to appreciate how well balanced it is. Um, so, so I did this game, uh, Spectromancer with, uh, um, another designer, uh, from, from Belarus, uh, Alexei Stankovich. And, uh, uh, in Spectromancer, uh, uh, there were six different character classes, uh, I might have that wrong, uh, but one of them was given away for free, the priest, and the others you you, you purchased as a digital game. Um, and uh, and there was this uh, belief online that uh, that uh, the priest was the worst class. Uh, and now now I know that it wasn't chosen to be the worst. 
that, that was the assumption because it was free. Um, it was chosen because it had uh, sort of, it showed the biggest range of possibilities in the game. It had flexibility. Uh, so then we did an analysis of the performance of the different character classes. And uh, the priest uh, had uh, was had about a 48% uh, win at the low yeah, among beginners. Uh, so it was very close to 50%, which is even. Uh, then it dropped to like 42%. Uh, so significantly bad for intermediate players. But then it went up to like 54% for expert players. And when you think about it, that makes sense because it was it was chosen for flexibility. Flexibility is skill testing. Experts are going to be able to take more advantage of that than beginners. Uh, and and so and so you have this class which uh, is good for experts but bad for intermediates. So then another class which was uh, 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 coveted uh, by the by by the uh, by the players was the necromancer and you look at the performance there and it was like 52 percent for beginner and it went up to like 56 percent for intermediate so it was really good and then it dropped to like you know 44 percent it was uh, terrible uh and that's because there was you could it was a pretty easy uh, uh class to play and uh but when you were an expert you knew how to play around it and so it wasn't that big a deal and so that in a lot of ways, exemplifies uh, what I how I think about balance, which is that uh, that the, the, the situation with Spectromancer was really uh, uh, what I would have wanted uh, had I had I uh, done it intentionally, which was there was more than one class that was good for beginners and intermediates, and more than one class that was good for experts. They didn't necessarily overlap. Yeah, I found this is actually uh, especially true in some of the most popular games now. Um, League of Legends has this as a phenomenon. I'm not an avid player, but a lot of the people at my office are, um, where there are certain characters that are, like the top tier players are they're their best characters um but for the casual player they're a disaster their win rates are terrible because they are they, they require a lot of skill shots and a lot of like good manual dexterity uh but if you can do that well then they're going to be the best thing uh possible yeah uh and, and if you can't then you're just never going to hit and you're wasting a lot of your time um so yeah no that's the first the first time i play uh a lot of online games i gravitate towards the characters that uh that moves slow because I know that I can't take it. This is the same thing as the skill testing. I can't take advantage of speed as well as somebody else. So I want that exchange for something else like extra damage. <laughs> right. But, uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's better for me at least until I learn the game. Yeah. And that, and that, I mean, I really, so there, this is sort of another principle of, of, I think of game balance and, and really design broadly too, which is that you want to be able to build things that appeal to each player demographic that you're, you're trying to hit right not necessarily every game should appeal to every demographic but like that yeah okay there's some players who really love the skill shot portion of this so there's some players who really love having flexibility and being able to counter everything their opponent does where there's others that just want to do as much damage as possible and like being able to make sure that those you know psychographics or those those player types all have something viable to do um, that it's not necessarily the best strategy, but that they have a reasonable shot at, at, at succeeding with the thing they're looking for. Uh, I feel like it's an important principle as you're as you're balancing the different components out there. Uh, yes, yeah, 
that's uh, that, and that that makes it uh, very important to test with a broad range of players uh, because the ones that uh, seem kind of disengaged with the design as it stands, uh, you you might be able to find you might be able to find that they respond to a uh, a strategy which which you just don't have in the game or at least not strong enough. Yeah, and and I think I, I, sort of circling back a little bit to your comment about you know building designing for the best players versus designing for the broadest audience or the range you know beginner, intermediate, and advanced. Um, I think that it's really it depends a lot on the game that you're making and the the um, also the marketing strategy that you're building too, right? If a game is going to have high level tournaments and expect high level competitive play where there's a lot of money on the line and there's a lot of things happening and that's your strategy for like how you're positioning your game, then, well, you better be well-developed for high-level players um, because otherwise that experience is going to fall apart and you're going to be spending a lot of money on prizes that are not going to serve you. Um, whereas if your game is more just going to be played around the kitchen table and there's no expectation of anything high-level, then then the, the experience of the high-level players is far less far less important. Yeah, that, that, that's that's uh, that that is true. Uh, that uh, if if you don't if you're not backing up your game with uh, something that uh, uh, really uh, exploits high level play, then yeah, the balance uh, uh, the the effort you put into that may only serve to make the game worse for the casual player. Yeah, and then there's there's these the, these things. So I'll sort of trying to get the players casual players initial instincts to be generally correct when they first show up is something I've always been focused on. Um, I'll tell the story sort of Ascension started out this way where, you know, for me, I love like long-term strategy and being able to build the best coolest deck possible and then eventually just win with an overwhelming force. And so the original version of Ascension was all about if you started buying power and, you know, trying to defeat monsters early, you were almost always going to get overrun by somebody who worked on first building up their deck and then, converting into points and stuff later in the game uh but the casual player when i started testing it was always just wanted to kill monsters they just that was their that was the first thing they wanted to do uh and so that they would get rolled over by these you know quote-unquote experts and so i actually ended up rebalancing the game so that those casual players those instincts would not be wrong and that you could still win with that just like let's go fight some monster strategy uh so i was misled by my own preferences and so it was just underscoring that point of, like it was so important to to test with other players and see what they what they would gravitate to and then give them opportunities to then you know evolve into other strategies well that's a yeah that's an excellent uh illustration of that uh i find that all the time when I when I when I uh, am testing a game that I'm working on, uh, I'm very frequently the uh, worst player at the table, and that is uh, because I come in with a preconception of how it should be played, uh, um, but uh, but that's not necessarily how the game uh, how other people are going to play it. And uh, and and so if everybody plays the way I play, they'll probably have a fun time. But uh, I've put all this flexibility in, and so I either have to remove that flexibility, or uh, or or make it so that those are viable ways to play. Right. Yeah. The, if only I could get players to play the way I would play, this game would be awesome. <laughs> that's, that's right. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so unfortunately having to be a mind reader and get influence people who you will never meet to do the things you want them to do is the core of our job. And <laughs> turns out not easy. Yeah. I remember playing a game at one point with a, with a friend, uh, 
uh, where uh, he took the long-term strategy and I took the blitz strategy uh, and uh, and I crushed him and uh, and uh, he you know immediately thought the game was unbalanced because uh, his strategy hadn't worked um, and I was on the other hand very uh, pleased because my first instinct in all these games is always to play long term uh, uh, but uh, but I, I overcame it this one time and managed to actually win uh, I, I think yeah uh, there's there's just a lot of ways to go about playing these games and that's what makes them uh... yeah there's well there, there's, there's two there's two sub points to that that I think are interesting one is um, yeah, a lot of times, as you sort of alluded to at the beginning of this discussion, when people say a game is unbalanced, what they mean is, rah, <laughs> I, I didn't win. Uh, and there's this sort of psychological outlet of, I don't have to blame myself uh, and take responsibility for what happened. I can blame the designer. I can blame bad luck. I can blame, you know, mana screw, <laughs> whatever, uh, that it's not my problem. And that's actually, a, to some degree, a good escape valve, right? I mean, I often have to give the same talk that I'm sure you give a, a ton, which is, no, no, having mana screw, having the variety of those plays is actually a really good thing and critical to the fun of the overall experience, obviously within boundaries, but that's, um, so the, the psychological out or the extreme scenarios are actually a good thing to have in games. Uh, and then there's this this second point of like being able to, when I when I think about when I uh, creating different, uh, power levels and different strategies i always try and, and you did this in the very beginning with magic quite a bit is to build in the kind of silver bullet options that any given strategy maybe it's the best strategy but if i know that you know it's the best strategy and you're going down that road there's something i can do to counter it uh, and making yeah. sure that that's available is one of the best tools i know of to like curb the worst of of unbalanced uh, you know degenerate strategy options yeah, no, that's a that is a uh, a strong technique, uh, and it uh, is more satisfying if well done than the strategy of just removing that as a viable option, uh, because people like having a lot of different strategies that uh, that have uh, to follow, and uh, and so uh, if you if you say this one's too powerful and you you uh, remove it uh, as a, uh, that's that's not as satisfying as putting in uh, uh, sort of some counter strategy which people can employ. Yeah, when I I worked I, I, the game uh, deck building game I released last year, Shards of Infinity, um, I really focused on that counter strategy idea. The game uh, I'm not sure if you're you know, familiar with that one, but it's basically you're attacking the players directly as opposed to Ascension where you're you know kind of trying to get the most points. Uh, but there's two paths to victory. You can kind of increase your player level, your mastery level. Um, and if you get it all the way up to 30, one of your starting cards can actually win the game by itself, or you can sort of attack a player directly. And a lot of the, the there's this very aggressive counter strategy that can happen between players where if I know you're going down a certain route, then I can try to beat you on the other route, or I can do certain things to, that's very much a back and forth of play, which is one of the things I loved about you know, I really tried to build in especially strongly into that design um, so we can do like very degenerate things and some stuff can go completely off the rails. But if I know you're going down a road, then I can be looking for tools to kind of cut you off before you can get too far down it. No, it says, uh, that sort of design direction is very exciting to me because uh, um, it's so interactive. Uh, uh, I, I'm very... Uh, I, I enjoy games that are less interactive. Uh, so, for instance, I like Yahtzee. Uh, 
Yahtzee is uh, almost uh, just a puzzle. The only thing that separates it from just being a puzzle is uh, is the fact that if I'm behind, I can press my luck, uh, and that's just about it. Right. Um, uh, but uh, but still, it's a it's a good puzzle and it's a, it's a lot of fun. But uh, the standards for so many games these days are very very far down the uh, non-interactive. Uh, side of the scale in fact uh, I, I like to term them as being passive aggressive because there's nothing i can directly do to you but if i do this then that's going to make it so that uh, um you know do this thing which i don't necessarily want to do but it's going to make it so that uh, that you can't do this thing which does you know it's, it's so rather than directly affecting another player i'm doing these second these removed interactions which is also quite good I like Puerto Rico, for example, which is sort of a, a king of that. Uh, but but uh, but that's so standard that there's uh, that that I, I long for a good interactive experience that you get with a game like like poker, yeah, or, or shards, uh, for example. So um, I, I I recognize we're running short of time, and and this this development question I has plagued me, and I've actually wanted to have this conversation with you since the game came out. But how did you think about developing Keyforged, like the fact that you are building not just cards that are evaluated on their own but cards that get evaluated always within a specific context of a deck that you're procedurally generating what what went into that like i, I that it, that just fascinates me to no end how you balance <laughs> that <laughs> well uh you you i mean uh you don't <laughs> uh, i mean <laughs> i was afraid that was the answer <laughs> There's the how how to best balance a game like Keyforge is is sort of a there's a uh, it really uh, becomes a separate question uh, which is uh, um, uh, there there's there's you 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 want to make sure uh, it, it you would absolutely uh, cut into the variety of decks too much to actually make a serious attempt to balance it. So I knew going into it there were going to be better decks and worse decks. Now this uh, this was okay with me because uh, because I mean well for me it was the price of admission right I wanted to have a highly variable experience where every deck was exciting and different uh, and that, that means they're going to be unbalanced. Uh, so uh, for me, this returned my, me to the old days of magic, where where people would put together whatever a lightning bolt mountain deck, and they crush somebody a few times. A lightning bolt mountain deck, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, crush somebody, and then after a few times, they say, "Well, this is boring. Let's make a real deck." Um, and and so where people had to take uh, control of their experience and handicap each other in some way, either the, you know find two decks that balanced enough against each other to make fun games or handicap the stronger one in such a way. So I came up with this idea of, uh, of uh, applying chains to a particular deck in order to, that players might make a fair game. And uh, as much as I can, I try to encourage people also to uh, not make the game about finding the best deck and using it to beat everybody, uh, which is sort of the trope from uh, deck builders, but instead get a deck and see what you can do with it. Uh, and this was uh, uh, it's a, it's a very it, it's a it's a very hard culture to change, but it certainly is the case that in my group, when there was a powerful deck, uh, my players did not say I want to play the powerful deck. Uh, they wanted to play 
the weaker deck in order to beat the powerful deck, which is a very you know, it's like, it's again, it's not culturally what people, what we're driven to do, but it's it's a very sensible thing because, you know, when I play Civilization online, I don't set it on easiest so I can beat it every time. I set it on uh, as, as hard as I can manage and, uh, and, and and because I want a challenge. It's the same thing in, uh, in a game like uh, Keyforge. If I, uh, if, if I'm playing with a, a pal and uh, one of the decks has a 90% win rate against the other, you can be sure I want to play the one with a 10% win rate because I want, uh, there's no glory the other way. Uh, all that said, there, there were some balancing considerations in that what I did want to make was that, that the lowest, the worst decks uh, didn't get too bad. Um, and, and I failed uh, uh, with, I did not do as good a job as I'd like at, at first, but we're getting better at that. But yeah, uh, by making sure that there's enough creatures in the deck and not too many things which uh, have hooks into other things in your deck uh, that don't exist, uh, for example, uh, you can make it so that uh, so that uh, um, the 50th percentile deck, when you pick up something from the 10th percentile, that you've got a chance of beating it. Um, uh, uh, you don't want to make it so that when you pick up a 10th percentile deck, you know, it's like you've got no chance of, of beating a 50th percentile deck. Um, so, yeah, uh, controlling the lower end was, was where I spent most of my energy. And that was done through primarily mi managing the ratio of, like, kind of creatures and making sure that certain cards that were very unique referenced would only exist if there was something that they referenced or something that they could connect to? Yes. Uh, uh, I made... So the common cards, making it so that the common cards are powerful, which uh, we, we talked about earlier, that's that's really important because it means that uh, because the the lower tenth percent decks have a ton of common cards, uh, and and so if if they in general are pretty reasonable, there's only so bad a, a tenth percentile deck can get, um, and. Uh, 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 then, then, yeah, make sure uh, there's a lot of cards which interact with creatures. At, at first, I wanted to make no, um, no limitations on creatures in the game. For instance, that you could come up with a creatureless deck. Uh, and my reasoning for that was, I, I, I'm very, you know, it's like I don't want to cut out variety in the game uh, at the cost, uh, uh, in the pursuit of balance, uh, and and so and uh, anytime you say uh, you're required to have this, that cuts out a whole spectrum of decks. And then I looked at those spectrum of decks and say, were any of those things that I wish were in the in the environment? And if the answer was yes, then I was hesitant to do it. So when people started talking about putting uh, restrictions on how many creatures were in the deck, you know, could come in the deck, uh, I would say, is it possible that that there are creatureless decks that are interesting powerful fun to play and the answer to me was was clearly yes uh so i was uh very resistant to to putting in those now later on uh we started generating these decks that were actually powerful with very very few creatures uh but they actually weren't all that fun to play and i realized that uh that this that that that, that maybe that maybe throwing away those decks in the mix were actually worth the the benefit you get for making sure that there's a minimum number of creatures, um, and so then we, we uh, uh, so I would take things like that and and, uh, and and feed it back into the deck design algorithm and uh, and uh, 
anyway, it's, it's something constantly tinkering with. Uh, I, uh, I, I kicked myself every time there was something like a sacrificial altar, which, uh, which targets humans, and there's no humans in the deck. That's just a stupid mistake and an oversight in the algorithms, and, uh, and you shouldn't have that unless you can sacrifice your opponent's uh, humans. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating, and obviously a hugely uh, complex problem with a lot of ramifications, which I, we, we, you know, I'm happy we've been able to touch on here, but can't, can't go can't go through it all. Um, I, so one thing you mentioned that I actually do think will be a great sort of final topic for us to discuss is the, the culture of your game and like how powerful that is, because that's the thing that, you know, one of the things that, that Keyforge presents is this idea of like, well, no, no, you just buy one deck and then you can play, or you could have a culture that's like, no, no, no I'm going to keep buying decks till I get the best deck or the deck that I need for me. Uh, versus like, even with magic, you know, a lot of times when I was not as, you know, not as focused on magic, I would, instead of sort of buying all of the cards and trying to build my best deck, I would just like buy the variety pack of pre-constructed decks that all came out together, play them with my friends. And that was a great experience. And I never felt like I needed to like constantly evolve it. And we could just pick which deck we wanted and play and then swap and play. And, and it was all about that different local culture. How do you think about building culture for your games or how should, you know, designers think about being able to build that culture where you can get that experience you want? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know the best way to build it. I know that what I've done is is come out often uh, and and talked about cultures that work well for me uh, with both trading card games and other games. Uh, but it, and, and generally espousing the philosophy that players should uh, should not look at uh, the game publisher as being the master arbiter of everything that's correct uh they should take a game and play it the way they want and and so for example in keyforge uh coney was uh looking over uh, a bunch of the uh stuff that's coming out of spain and uh and and there's a strong belief there that when you play the first time you play you you should not look at the content of your deck uh you should play it uh completely uh blind because you're only going to experience that uh, joy of discovery with that deck once. And uh, and that's a great culture, right? And the fact that they've sort of adopted that and they're sort of spreading that among themselves, like, and I may not have thought of that. Uh, I have certainly played that way from time to time, but I hadn't thought about elevating it to uh, the uh, sort of a, a cultural standard until, uh, until uh, I heard about it. Uh, and, and so keeping you know, keeping your fingers in how people in, are in, enjoying playing and encouraging people to experiment with the way they play uh, makes for a really healthy community. That is something we should try to keep hold of. Now, of course, all, all this uh, is a little bit challenged when you do try to uh, make the game a, a game that's played seriously. So, for example, with Magic, uh, um, uh, a lot of that became challenged when we added the Pro Tour, because there you do have to have the publisher be the master arbiter of what's correct and what you know the the right way to play, because they're saying we're going to give you all this money if you play this particular way. But even there, if you uh, uh, if it's like players ultimately are always in charge of their play experience, in the sense that uh, that uh, it was after that that uh, the whole 
like the commander and that kind of experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, the commander and, and all sorts of homebrew ways of playing that are more casual, take advantage of uh, cards you have laying around, where drafting, people make their own cubes to draft and things like that. There's so much players can do uh, in any game they love to play it the way they want. Uh, the only time they have to, the only time they have to uh, listen to the publishers when is when uh, the publisher is, you know, giving out a lot of money for them to play a particular particular well, format. And I think there's also interesting things, even as a publisher, as a designer, you can do to try to incentivize the things you're looking for. So, you know, in addition to the, the sort of standard trope of like the best player with the best deck gets the prize and gets money, you can do other things too, like you know, Warhammer's pretty well known for this, where they'll like, you have the best painted army and you have the most sportsmanship player award and you have the coolest story deck, you know, that you could put together and things like L5R and people really align themselves to like representing their clan. Um, And I think that there are even tools while of course, like the local letting this be a bottom up thing, which maybe is just the right answer in the long term, where things like commander formats and other things come up from players. Um, I still think there are tools that we have as, designers as publishers to potentially even push people in that right direction and really like no no we should you know care about story here or care about building your local community or you know that the people that you play the the performance of the people that you play against ends up mattering in a different way like i think there's a lot of interesting again design ways we can try to design culture um and of course the game mechanics themselves and the game sells model uh all all feed into that so it's just another really interesting puzzle that um I think a lot of designers don't put enough thought into uh, that can really make all the difference in the world. I mean, a, a bad culture for your game can just destroy it and make it so that nobody wants to come play, whereas a good local culture can overcome enormous challenges with the game itself. But a culture, you know, if the culture is good, people want to be a part of it. No, that 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 is uh, that is true. Uh, my uh, general guide of try to make make it so people uh, understand they're in charge of the culture. Uh, certainly does not mean that you can't steer it, either take the best ideas from your audience or come up with good ideas yourself. Uh, so, for instance, uh, in Keyforge, uh, um, I came out with lots of guidelines for how to do uh, uh, apply handicaps to to decks, and I uh, and I so so I, I made this effort to try to uh, create a culture where people would play decks and then um and then after uh, a bit when they understood which ones were more powerful begin uh begin putting chains uh which is a handicap on the ones that that were more powerful and i'm not sure how now certainly the create the the suggestion and detail that culture has made it so that more people are doing that than otherwise would have done that but i'm not sure if that was the correct you know the best thing so so people are taking that and playing with that and uh, and coming up with their own and and so i want to be uh, uh aware of what you know how people you know how, what what actually works for people a, 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 another example of culture from the early days i was like uh, i i've had the culture of anti for magic where you stake a card every time you play that that was a cultural idea which crashed and burned. Uh, the spirit of the culture was that uh, that for people who did not want to uh, trade cards uh, or um, get new cards, uh, this was a way for their decks to change over time. 
as probably just misguided. Uh, certainly, it was misguided in the sense that uh, not everybody wants to gamble their cards, uh, and uh, and that they valued the cards more than I expected. So, so there was a, a good reason for that uh, that culture to fail. Fascinating. I'd like. I really would love at one point dig into the challenge of how you could make a culture like that succeed. But uh, but we're running out of time, so we can't uh, get into that now. Maybe in our next talk. <laughs> I. Uh, so uh, this is awesome. I I always love talking to you and and your insights on design and and, and working together has been just you know one of the privileges of my entire career. Uh, so for people that want to uh, follow you or find more things that you're doing or learn about your latest projects, uh, where, where's the best place they can go and and learn more about about what you're up to these days? Uh, I have a a spotily maintained Facebook web page, uh, so that's that's about the only recommendation I've got. Okay, so people just look up your name on on Facebook, and every yeah. now and then they'll see something. <laughs> yeah, whenever a, a, a new project uh, comes out, or or uh, uh, there's a major sort of change to one of the ones that's out there, I, I post it. And occasionally, I post uh, some of my random musings too. I wrote a an article on uh, the freemium models and how they have the potential to abuse players and uh, also a, a, an article on uh, universal basic income, something which uh, I've given a lot of thought to. Ooh, okay. I, haven't, I didn't see that one. I'm going to check that out because I'm, I'm very deeply interested in that as well. But uh, so many topics for a future time. I, I really appreciate you giving me this much time for this talk. It's amazing. And uh, it is, uh, I guess, just going to have to wait till next time for all these other fancy topics. Thanks again, Richard. Okay. Uh, anytime. That's uh, fun to talk. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to support the podcast, please rate, comment, and share on your favorite podcast platforms, such as iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever device you're listening on. Listener reviews and shares make a huge difference and help us grow this community and will allow me to bring more amazing guests and insights to you. I've taken the insights from these interviews, along with my 20 years of experience in the game industry, and compressed it all into a book with the same title as this podcast, Think Like a Game Designer. In it, I give step-by-step instructions on how to apply the lessons from these great designers and bring your own games to life. If you think you might be interested, you can check out the book at thinklikeagamedesigner.com or wherever fine books are sold.